word just. I just wanted to. You see that all the time. I'm just saying, I just think, I just think we should do. Just takes away the power of what you're about to say next. It diminishes it. And they don't protect you. What they do is diminish the impact of your communications and oftentimes make you appear weak and indecisive. And if you get an email with all those diminishers in it, I just thought maybe, I actually think you're not going to be taken as seriously as if you come across like you are confident about what you're talking about and what your ideas are. Straight from the boardroom to the microphone, I'm April Garcia, and this is Pivot Me, easily applied tools and hacks to get you ahead. This isn't just a podcast. This is an upgrade for your life. Helping good people become even better. This is Pivot Me. Get ready for an amazing chat with speaker and trainer Sue Reynolds. Sue is a certified executive coach, social media marketing strategist, and creator of the Leadership for Women web series. She has a degree in organizational leadership, 20 years of experience in the corporate and nonprofit space. She works with a major corporation as well as at the amazing Carmine Media. Sue now oversees a team of social media and content marketers and specializes in mentoring and empowering women to succeed in the workplace. Our talk today digs into how women can sabotage their success in the workplace and ultimately what they can do about it. She will tell us how to level up our communication game, to negotiate well, and communicate what you need for success at work. Sue is going to tell us why we just shouldn't say just. What to look for before we send an email and how the guy next door is negotiating for the same deal as you, only better. Women, this one might sting a little bit, but man, do we need to hear it. Everything that Sue shares today, I've seen myself in corporate America hundreds of times. We need to hear this and we need to take action. I've no doubt she's going to fire you up as well. Let's get into it. So I'm so excited to have you today, Sue Reynolds. You have an amazing background. We want to get into the things that you discuss, but let's kick this off first with how you got into this type of work. Yeah, so I do have a degree in leadership and my degree is within the past 10 years. And so it was really nice to have an up-to-date education on this because they did include a lot of these types of things, the things that I talk about in my TikTok videos, some of the comments that I get around gender in the workplace. And I'm glad that uh, the, the classes that I took approached it. Between that and being a female in a very male-dominated industry, I've learned some things by the school of hard knocks as well. And I'm in a leadership role and I can see a lot of my millennial employees, team members making these mistakes. And so it just started to click that this is something that I need to coach around, not just my team, but women in general. And then when I started getting comments and questions on my TikToks, which were sort of a random surprise success, when I started posting content like this, I was amazed at the response. And so many of the questions and concerns from women told me that 
this is a topic that needs to be discussed. And, you know, I've always said I'm a social media marketer by trade, and I've always said the audience will teach you what works. And in this case, the audience taught me what works, that this is content that needs to be talked about. And so I drew on my leadership degree. I am an executive coach and started producing content around these topics. And I've just been amazed at the response. Absolutely. So I love the backstory on how you got into this. And actually, the funny thing, this is how Sue and I got connected is I had people bring your videos to me and say, I think we need to have this gal on the show. Like what she's saying is so relevant and so needed. And I'm glad that you started doing these videos because ultimately that's how we got connected. So for the Pivot Me listeners that haven't seen your TikToks, haven't seen what you're doing out on social media, talk to us about what you're doing and and why you're doing it. Yeah. So I'm posting content that sort of encourages, I'll use the word encourages, women to level up their communication game when it comes to advocating for themselves, when it comes to being clear in what they need to be successful at work, and also things like negotiating salary, dealing with your boss when they're asking you to do multiple projects at the same time, negotiation skills. Women have some differences in the way they approach communications, both written, verbal, uh, even body language. Uh, We do some things that sometimes sabotage our own success. And when I started posting content on TikTok about that, I could not believe the response that I got. People came out of the woodwork to say, oh, I've been caught. I do these things. I didn't even realize it. Thank you. I've gotten so many wonderful testimonials and thanks from women about how just being aware of these things can help them be more successful. And a lot of it, I make fun of some of the emails that women will send. I've sent emails like these myself. So I've learned a lot of this stuff on my own, but I also run a team. I have a team and I see the emails that come across my desk. And so uh, I wanted to help women be their own best advocate. And when I started posting content, like I said, the audience really responded. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I feel pretty, pretty passionate about as well. So I'm great to hear. I'm, I'm so excited to hear your lens on this. So give us an example. So was it always taking notes in meetings? I'm just throwing out for my own personal, always taking notes in meetings. Is it uh-huh. not sitting at the table, sitting in the corner? Is it raising our hand? Give us some specific, these are just things I've seen in meetings. I'd love to hear what you're talking about specifically. Your examples are really important ones. And yeah, those are things that we do. We don't want to be in anyone's way, right? So, oh, they're sitting at the table. I'll just sit over here. And then literally, you're not at the table. You're literally not at the table. Yes. Yeah. And uh, taking notes at meetings is another one. Then you're not participating in the meeting with ideas and the discussion. Uh, Unfortunately, we're often asked to take notes. Now, you know, April, you're going to take notes, right? Especially if you're the only woman in the meeting. And that's unfortunate that that happens. It's good to have a strategy for it. You know, it's really hard for me to multitask. No, I'm happy to take notes, but then I'm not going to be able to participate the way I would like. Are are you sure you still want me to take the notes and put the onus on them to say, yeah, no, we don't want you to participate. We just want you to take notes. (laughs) And then that's a tough thing for them to say. So you've got to go into it with a strategy. But uh, some of the other things that women do are one of the things that we can talk about a little bit are diminishers. And um, I like to talk about diminishers with women because we have a tendency to diminish our language. 
And we do it because we want to be polite. We don't want to seem rude. We don't want to seem like a man. And so we use things like, I thought maybe we could do X. Or I feel like maybe the team could do Y. Instead of saying, I think, we say, I actually think that this is not a great idea. And the word just, I just wanted to. You see that all the time. I'm just saying, I just think, I just think we should do, just takes away the power of what you're about to say next. It diminishes it. And they don't protect you. What they do is diminish the impact of your communications and oftentimes make you appear weak and indecisive. And if you get an email with all those diminishers in it, I just thought maybe, I actually think you're not going to be taken as seriously as if you come across like you are confident about what you're talking about and what your ideas are. And for some reason, women have been culturally trained to do this in a way that makes us feel like we're being polite. And some of the comments that I get on TikTok are, that is really rude. I can't do that. You can't just ask for what you want. That's not appropriate. Oh, tell me how to get fired. They say, you know, tell me how to get fired without telling me how to get fired. I've, I've literally gotten that comment yeah. when I tell people to stop using the word just. Say, I'll tell you how to get promoted without telling you how to get promoted. How about that, honey? So that's the thing is, yeah. I, well, let me ask you this. Is it, this is the larger question, but is it natural? Is it nature versus nurture? Have we been trained to do this, conditioned to do this, or is it inherent? You know, I really think it's cultural. I I don't think it's inherent at all. I, I think it's cultural. We're trained to diminish our thoughts and ideas in order to appease the people who have power over us, right? And very often in the case of uh, leaders that are higher up than us, they're very often men. Because you know, as well as I do, that women don't have as many leadership roles it's just statistics. as men do. Right now it is just statistics. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it, it is the it case. Can change. And it depends on the industry. And it is changing. Of course it depends. But. Yes. But even in our family lives, very often, you know, we, we had to appease the people who were the head of the household, depending on the generation that you are. Um, I'm 53. My father was a very kind and gentle man. I, I was not socialized that way by him, but I certainly was by my mother who grew up in the fifties and, and was, was given these, these cultural rules to follow how women got along in those days in the office. And of course there were no rules against discrimination of women in those days. And so this is how you learn to get along and you pass that along to your daughters. Yeah, you do. And that's, that's such an important point is that Sometimes we don't stop and think about our conditioning, but if you're a parent or in a leadership or role model role at all, which frankly we all are, right? We're modeling that behavior every day. You know, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter, you know, what movie you play or documentary, what they see you doing every single day will always be more powerful than whatever words you can say to them. And unless you also want them to diminish themselves, if you also want to role model that, hey, this is how you are nice, this is how you are liked. I mean, we're, we really got to change that now. I do see signs that it is changing and just even us having this conversation. You know, I've been in the corporate world for years. It's definitely not something we talked about years ago. It was just kind of like, all right, we're in. 
They didn't know that we got in. Let's not let's not rock the boat, right? Which is not the way yeah. to do that, but that's how many of us got into the roles that we had. And now we're able to change the next generation and guide the next generation. Yeah, what a great opportunity for us, right? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that you said that was really good is you said about having a strategy in advance. So if you naturally write emails this way, or maybe you've been conditioned to write emails this way or to speak this way, having a strategy in advance. And I think that is so, so important because people, when we get tense or we're in these tough situations, we kind of default to what we've always done. And so what I'm hearing is plan how you're going to say that in advance. Is it, is there a cheat sheet? Is there, don't use this word, instead use that word. Talk to us about how to handle that. You know, a lot of it is just practice going through your emails after you've written them, before you hit send, go look for those diminishers. Look for, I feel like, I actually think. Make sure that you're removing those, then hit send. And when you start being more aware of how often you're using these diminishers, you'll naturally start removing them from your spoken language too. But you make a good point. When you're under stress, you might revert back to some of these mistakes. And it's not like one or two of these mistakes is going to forever ruin your career, but making them consistently is going to keep you from getting the information you need from your coworkers for projects. People aren't taking you seriously when they get an email like this or when you make statements like this in a meeting. So it's practice and it is being aware first. And I think that's really what's happening on my TikToks is suddenly people are being made aware that they do this and they feel caught, <laughs> they yeah. busted, yeah. you know, but it's good. Then, then they can change it. You can't change things that you're not aware of. For sure. One of the things that really struck me about your content that I loved, and this is where I can, can kind of ruffle some feathers is that you're putting the onus on them to change your language. And that can be unpopular because I, I've actually talked about this topic many times in the past. I share a story about one time I was in a meeting and it was a mostly C-suite, but there's some director levels in there. And it was a CEO and the VP were arguing about this point. And the person that was perfectly positioned to answer the question was the director of engineering who was sitting next to me. Now, she came and sat next to me, probably because I was the only other female in the room. She didn't know me. I was new there, but she came and sat right next to me and she kept getting upset that they weren't asking her opinion and she kept raising her hand. Now, th this is a heated discussion between two people that are standing up in the center of the room going back and forth, right? Well, she's sitting in the back raising her hand and every time she'd raise her hand, she'd look at me and go, can you believe this? I, I can't believe they're not listening to me. And I'm like, well, we're not in grammar school. Why are you raising your hand? You are the director of engineering. You're, you're the person who's supposed to be up there having this discussion. And I remember just going, oh man, she's sabotaging herself. I'm like you're making us look bad. And this is years ago, but I'll, I never forgot. And I, I mean, I've been in hundreds of situations like that. And I'm sure you have as well. You're watching someone and you're like, it's not that they're not listening to you. You're not making yourself heard. And that's one of the things that really resonated with me and your content. When I saw it, I said, oh God, she puts it on us to change. Because if it's, if it's outside of us, we don't always have control over what other people do. Yes, we need change on the larger level for sure. But the one thing you have complete ownership over is how you conduct yourself in the workplace. And have you always taken that approach? Is that, because that's kind of a unique stance. You're spot on. 
One of the questions that I do get, and one of the, I would say, criticisms that I get is, you're blaming women for this when we should be trying to change the culture. Why, why aren't we asking men to change the way they're talking and engaging in meetings and asking men to include women in a way that's fair? Okay, we don't have control over that, especially in the immediate point. What we do have control over is ourselves. And you're right. I'm putting the onus on women to use their power in their own advantage. So I don't feel like we are blaming women. I don't believe we're blaming women. I think gender bias does exist. And I think we should try to change the culture. But in our day-to-day lives, we can only control ourselves and the way we react to situations. So normalizing women's clear communication so that we are seen as having the same decisiveness as men in these same situations is something we have control over. And that's the beauty of it. We get to change ourselves. We're not having to wait for somebody else to open the door for us and say, okay, you're allowed in now. You can sit at the table, literally. Yes. We are. I love the metaphor of opening the door, by the way. That was good. Like We do this ourselves. But as long as we keep buying into the idea that our thoughts and ideas aren't quite as important as other people's, we're not going to be taken seriously. And uh, the fact that we get to control that, I think, is an opportunity for us. Let's stop diminishing our own authority. It's not blame. It's awareness. Yeah. Yeah. It's teaching people how to take back their power Yes, because we're giving it away every day in little ounces and we're giving it away in our language and our behavior and the way we hold ourselves and the way we sit in the back of the boardroom or the way that we get so small in meetings because we don't want to take up too much space. I mean, you see it and you're just like, oh, but your voice is not going to be heard and you have something so very important to say. But if you do not say it loud enough, they may not hear you. The body language is a really good point. Um, One of my TikToks that's done fairly well is on body language. And I'm actually mimicking in the the video the language that some women will use. And you just sort of did it. And it's that, you know, we're sitting at the table. And a lot of times- Not taking up space. It's because we're cold. You know, there are temperature differences. (laughs) And of course, there's differences in the women's clothing in the office too. And men might have a jacket on and a shirt. And we're sitting there in our little- you know, sleeveless blouse or whatever, and we're freezing. And so we look like this in the meeting and that is not a decisive look. So unless you're shivering in the meeting, you look like you're trying to make yourself smaller. Bring a jacket is the moral to the story. If you're going to be in a cold meeting, bring a jacket. (laughs) And it's because we've seen it. So So I hadn't seen that video, but we've seen it so many times. And one thing I want to point out earlier when we were saying about taking the approach of putting the onus on us as women to kind of stand in our power, I just want to point out the decision is not binary. It's not either, oh, we take back our power or we we present ourselves more decisive or powerful in the workplace or men include women. It's not a binary decision. It's it's a two-prong approach. It's more than that. It's it's a whole lot of things and the diversity and leadership and all sorts of stuff. But do the part that you have control over. This part you have control over. How you show up in a meeting, you've got total control over. How you write your emails, you also have control over. And I, I love this so much. What's funny, Sue, is I'm just going to tell you, I usually don't talk about this stuff that much on Pivot Me. 
And it was actually getting familiar with what you were talking about that I said, I need to talk about this more. I need to talk about how women are handicapping themselves in negotiations so often, not always, but the majority of the conversations that I'm having with women about how they negotiate. And, and I, I want you to talk about that too, because I have a trick that I do with women so that they negotiate, I'll say more effectively, that it, the negotiation yields them more money. And I saw one of your videos and you touched on it. So talk to us about how many women negotiate in the workplace. First of all, they don't. And that's the first mistake. Very often, if we're talking specifically about negotiating salary, let's say when we're at the point where we are negotiating a new position, and this is the best time to negotiate because they've decided that they want you in this role. And there's never going to be a better time to negotiate than that. But very often women want to say, oh, you know, I'm just happy to be included and I'll take whatever the salary is. They also don't understand their worth. So they're not exactly sure what they should be asking for. We're not taught to negotiate. And it's really one of the reasons we're paid less. Yes. Yes. It's a huge component. That's the piece everyone's missing is like, oh, there's a wage gap. No question. But it's on us to take the power that we have to help negotiate. The deck is stacked against us in some ways, but it is 100% in your ability to change that for you. And you can create this tide. Oh my gosh. Okay, sorry, I cut you off. Sue, keep talking. <laughs> so good. Uh, so if you're asking me to give some tips, first of all, use a tool like salary.com and find out what the median salary is in your area. For, for your job description. What is the median salary? So go in armed with knowledge about what your positions value, not what you're worth, what you as a person are worth, what the skills you're bringing to the company are worth. Go in with an understanding that you probably need to ask for more than that because there's gonna be some negotiating and you want them to come away feeling like they've won. The other thing that I recommend doing for women is to role play this with a man. You will Just be very surprised. I have, I have some friends, I have some clients that have done this, specifically one with a military person. And the role playing with a man is very eye-opening. They are so brazen about what they're worth very often. And they will come in and negotiate for things that you don't even think of. And until you've seen that in action, you don't even realize that this is what you're competing with. In the other room, somebody else is negotiating like this. And you're saying, oh, I'll just take whatever you think is, is good. Uh, I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but we do a little bit of that, don't we? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. And the role playing is so good also because you get in general, like, so I was in sales for years. I trained lots of sales teams and I, I always came back to role playing, role playing, role playing, role playing. And that applies just as much in negotiation because 
you get comfortable with the phrases, you get comfortable with the rebuttals when they say, yeah, I'm sorry, we just weren't just not a lot, HR is not going to go with that, or the cap is at this amount, or the last person we had in the role was this amount, all those variations of saying no, and then you having to come back and negotiate again, you get to practice in role playing. So it's just so you, your mouth gets comfortable saying the words, so you can get what you really deserve. Yeah, and know your walk away number too. Is there a number that you're going to not go below? And if it is, then you need to be prepared to say, you know, I just can't take the position for that. I know I've done my research, my skills, and the experience that I bring to your company is worth this. And also, this is how my specific skills line up with your business goals. This position is is worth that. And if I'd really like to work with you, you're my first choice, but I can't for that number. And you got to be willing to walk away. And that's tough. That's tough because we want to please, we want to be liked. Yeah. You know, one, uh, one thing I want to point out that you said that was so brilliant. I want to go back to it. So you said, you know, do your research because a lot of people will say, well, I don't know what this role is worth. Well, you have figured out much more complex things in your time. You can figure out what that role demands in the marketplace. However, what you said that was so brilliant, which was, figure out what that role commands in the marketplace, not what you're worth. And that delineation seems subtle, but it is everything. So talk, talk about that. Talk about why you phrased it that way. Imposter syndrome, <laughs> which we can talk about too. We have a tendency to diminish our own abilities. And I keep using the word diminish, but it, it fits because Maybe your job seems easy to you now. Maybe you've been doing it for 15 years. You've got your, your degree. You've got a, maybe a master's degree. And you've been practicing this craft for 15 years. And you walk in and here is an opportunity for you. And it feels easy because you're bringing 15 years of experience and two degrees to it. But we don't remember that. We think, oh, that's easy. How come no one else can do it? And is it really worth that much? I mean, it's easy for me. We forget that it's easy because of all of the years of skill and all of the education and practice that we have that we're bringing to this company. And that is incredibly valuable to them. They're going to try to make it seem like it's not during the negotiation process. And you have to be willing to push back. And the role playing helps with that because you're right. Practicing it makes it not feel so icky. And then go in there and know your worth. So one of the things that we talked about before we started recording was that women, like you were saying, they often don't negotiate or they don't negotiate as well, but women are actually very good negotiators. <laughs> when talk to us about how women are naturally very good negotiators in what circumstance are women really good negotiators? That's a great question. We are great negotiators when we're negotiating for other people. We, we've got to disconnect when it comes to our own abilities. And I really think that it's cultural. I think that we're taught to diminish our abilities on purpose so that we'll be liked. That's powerful. So if you think about, uh, I, I love this piece because when I work with women in negotiation, one of the things that I do, and there's a larger question. I feel like we could sit and talk about this, Sue, for about four hours, but there's a larger question of, oh my gosh, why can't we recognize our own worth and just advocate on our own behalf? That is probably not going to be solved today at Pivot Me. But the quick hack that I've used with women negotiating is that they're negotiating on behalf of their spouse or their kids. 
And I, let me just say, I hate that that has to be used. I hate it. And there's such a larger, larger issue that has to be solved, but it is a tool that will get, uh, I'm just thinking about a woman that I worked with and we connected what the, the Delta between what she would have been willing to get, but what I was pushing her to negotiate for, we gave it a why. What are you going to do with that money? And once we established where that extra salary was going to go, then she went and advocated very hard for it and got her number. But it was because that the delta between what she would have taken and what we were advocating for that was going to someone else. And then she was a great negotiator. It's a shame that that has to happen. But if you're in a situation right now where you need to negotiate and you're having a really hard time doing that or a really hard time saying, do I really command this much money in the marketplace or there's another one, but I've only ever made this much. Can I really ask for this much, even though the role really commands that much? Advocate on the behalf of someone else. Decide where that money's going, someone other than you, and you'll negotiate really hard for it. Now, again, I wish that wasn't the case, but that is a tool to to help right away. That's a great point. And I, I love the thought about thinking as if it were your child that you're advocating for, because just think about, you know, all the funny, I think about the funny videos that I see on TikTok, making fun of parents that do this, but you're calling your principal to defend your child (laughs) for something that, you know, they supposedly did in the lunchroom or whatever. And buddy, you're going to negotiate and you're going to advocate for that child come heck or high water. And we don't do that for ourselves. So true. <laughs> so what I recommend is you give that version of you, the, the mom version that calls the principal, give her a name. And that's who you become when you're walking in to negotiate. Like that, that's your alter ego is like, all right, I'm going to bring out Sarah and Sarah, she doesn't take no, she will not take no for an answer. And that's what you've got to channel while you go in there, because that you have to be like your bold and most powerful self in these negotiations. And I think people kind of walk in um, small already and it doesn't serve them. It's so hard to do. It, we want to be liked and, and there's fear and there's, and there's who do you think you are saying you're worth this or negotiating for that? It's so hard to do. And the role playing yeah. definitely helps get over that fear um, and I really like the idea of having an alter ego that you're, Oh yeah. That that's a, that's a great piece of advice. It's, it's a tool I, I use and it, and it works, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of pulling on some bigger issues. But one thing that you said, Sue, that I think is really important is you said, and it's hard because we want to be liked, but the truth is women in leadership sometimes aren't liked, are they? Oh no. It's overwhelming. So again, we haven't teed up this conversation. So it's just organically happening. I I feel like we're talking the same language. Can you talk a little bit about what can happen to powerful women in leadership and how others perceive them? Sure. It's lonely at the top. I mean, it just, it just is. And uh, haters are going to hate. Women are going to feel competitive with you. You know, there's a funny thing that happens when you feel like you're scrapping for resources or that you're competing for very few resources, it can get very unhealthy. It can get toxic even. Haters are going to hate. And when you're in a leadership role, that is going to come with criticism. The problem is very often women are more unfairly criticized for things that their male counterparts are not criticized for. We've seen it play out in politics during elections. All you have to do is Google. There's plenty of examples of that happening where the, you know, the media can be very unfair toward 
women and the way their voice sounds or focusing on the way they look instead of what they're saying, all of those things that uh, it can make it really tough. You have to have a thick skin if you're in a leadership role as a female. And they've done studies where I'm sure you're familiar with it as well, where they give a story of someone that's pursuing an opportunity at workplace and it's given out to a group of people and, you know, the person who they're describing is named Sarah. And then they give the same piece out to someone else and the, and the person is now named Stan. And the way that the readers respond to them is so, if you have any doubt that this happens, that is overwhelming how people will respond just by switching to a more kind of gender typical male or female role. Um, I'd love to see it if it came out as like a pat or something that's more natural. Like, what are you guys gonna do with that one? Huh? Remember that category um, uh, or that uh, character on Saturday Night Live? I think thinking of that. Yeah, I was thinking of that. Pat, yeah, like every, everyone's like, we don't know. I mean, is Pat's voice shrill? I'm not sure. Maybe or maybe he's just d- demonstrates leadership ability. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is so it's so sad. But I wanted to point that out because that is a reality up until this point that can change that is changing that's not a reason not to take a leadership role that's all the more reason to take a leadership role i shared that to kind of prepare people that that can happen that does happen but as more women transition into leadership roles as more women step into those roles that's going to happen less and less we're going to normalize what it looks like to have women ceos of fortune 500 companies in leadership roles we are in this in in the us alone we've seen that in lots of other countries but we're catching up here that will get less the more there is of us women in leadership roles totally agree i like that you use the word normalize the more women that are in these roles the more natural it's going to seem for all of us looking up at them for them to be decisive and uh, and not worry about the hair and makeup and the t- the tone of the voice, but what they're saying. Yeah, it's so important. You know, one of the things that we talk about at Pivot Me is that when you're actively seeking that next level success, not everybody's going to support you. And sometimes it's the people closest to us who aren't going to support you. And that's okay. That is a cost of reaching for that next level. That's no reason to stay small. And so know that some people aren't going to understand. Maybe it's your coworkers, maybe it's your peers. Maybe people say, oh, you're gonna step up in that leadership role. You know, do you think you're better than us? There's, to your point, haters are gonna hate, but recognize that not everyone's gonna support you. And also if you have a hang up, if you're thinking about going into this and you've got this hesitation, I would encourage you to listen to whose voice that is. And this kind of gets into the psychology of it, but stop and think, whose voice am I hearing of they're not gonna like me, they're gonna think I'm too tough, they're gonna think I'm acting like a man. Because a lot of times we can tie it back to someone and we go, ooh, okay, that person, we call it the personal board of directors, that person doesn't deserve a seat on my board of directors anymore because they're holding me back. Everything demands your attention right now. You want to be on your A-game, but you need two of you just to manage your day. But what if I could multiply you? What if I told you there are secrets that top performers are using right now to still get ahead? There are, and I'll give them to you. In my new Four Steps videos, I'll show you how to master distraction, practice prioritization, get the right things done without working more hours. And for now, I'm doing it for free. 
your time is priceless right now and you need to take back control of your day and your to-do list. Go to pivot-me.com backslash four steps and you can begin the videos within seconds. We all need more time right now and four steps will give it to you. Yes, you can multiply yourself and I'll show you how to do it in four steps. It is very hard to make that upward change for a lot of folks, for a lot of reasons, because you are leaving in some ways a few people behind. And maybe, especially if it's a promotion and you're in a team and now suddenly you're that team leader, you know, and maybe you used to go to lunch with them and hang out after work and all of a sudden they're not going to feel comfortable anymore. Now you're the boss and you're not going to get invited to things. Uh, They're going to have chats going on that don't include you and you'll walk by their computer and see them and you got to let it happen. You just got to be tough and not worry about what they're thinking. Have an open door policy. If they have an issue, it's their responsibility to bring it to you. If they have criticism, you are here and ready to hear it, but you can't let it get under your skin. Sure. Sir. So talk to us about criticism. I know that you talk about handling criticism. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And it's something that's developed from my social media management, right? We've had to think strategically for all the brands that I manage. How are we going to handle criticism? What are we going to do when somebody comes and has a complaint? And so what we have done is develop a several responses online that we use to, first of all, get it offline so that we're not arguing in public. Nothing diminishes your credibility more than going back and forth or arguing with someone in a public space, whether it's online or out in the office where everyone can hear you, right? Oh, that is so important. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Yeah. So get it offline. But the first thing you need to do is stop and resist reacting right away. That knee-jerk reaction where you want to defend yourself. You want to be angry and deflated and I always say you don't get to indulge in that. You have to take some steps in order to handle it appropriately. So now is not the time for a public confrontation. You want to be professional. Acknowledge that you've seen and heard what they said and then take it offline, whether that's in a private message on social or whether that is in your office or in a conference room if you don't have an office. Make sure that you are not fighting out in the public area. Listen to them to understand what it is they're saying. Make sure that you actively listen and avoid, you know, the body language that we were talking about, you know, this, and also the pouting or the, the head down, you know, look at them in the eye, repeat back what you heard them say, make sure that they feel understood. That often the act of making them feel understood will help to deescalate the situation ask clarifying questions. So mirror back what you think you heard. And then here comes the hard part. Ask yourself, is this true? You know, in a business world, they might be pointing out something. Let's say it's a social media complaint. They might be pointing something out that's legitimately wrong with your operational process. And Jay Baer writes a great book about hug your haters. Um, And it's mainly about social media, but it's really about life too. If somebody is brave enough to give you constructive criticism and you ask yourself if it's true, and it is, now you have an opportunity to make an improvement in yourself. You just got to figure out how to do it. 
take an attitude of gratitude with that. Not everybody's going to come to you as the boss and say, you know, we've got a problem and we need to talk about it because it's affecting me like this. That's such a gift when someone does that. Yeah, um, it does take a ton of courage. It takes a ton of courage for them part, to do it. It really does. And you need to have that same respect and courage back. If it's true, you need to look for a solution and then tell them what the solution is. Here's, you know, your feedback was really important to me. And here's what I'm going to do from now on. I'm really glad you brought that to my attention. Yeah. 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 That's so valuable. That gives us an opportunity to get better. And the people that do give us feedback, they're giving us a gift. Doesn't mean it's not hard to hear it. I mean, for any of us, it's hard to hear that feedback, but they really have given you a gift and they might be saying something that five other people also think, but simply didn't have the courage to sit down with you and have that conversation. So if we see that kind of, again, constructive criticism, but if we see it as a gift, we really can take action based off of it and then ultimately get better. Sue, in Pivot Me, we talk about sort of these pivot po points where everything changed for us. And maybe it's a change in the workplace. Maybe it's, you know, you, you mentioned about getting your degree 10 years ago in leadership. Uh, maybe it's the reason why you did that. But was there a, a moment in your life or in your career where there was this giant pivot point for you? As far as understanding the effect that culture has on me and culture has, in, to a larger point, on women, I would say that that was a journey that started in my late 20s. This is a personal story, but when I realized that I was gay and I had a woman in my life and not a man, and I had been raised to get married, have kids do all of these things that are expected of women. I mean, kind of the Victorian wife, you know, keep a house and, and, you know, have your apron on and dinner ready when your husband walks in the door. And, and I had subscribed to all of that. And then suddenly I found myself in love with this woman and I had to question everything. And it was so hard. I had to understand that and unlearn so much of what I had been taught about being a woman of value even means. What does that mean? What is my value? And I started applying these things throughout my life to my career as well. And the lessons that I learned in that difficult experience have been defining for me. And now I look back and I'm so glad that I learned it because I can help other women learn the same things that, hey, this is cultural. Cultural is, is a construct. It's Our culture is just something that we all have decided to agree is important, right? And it keeps changing and it keeps morphing. And like the things that we're talking about right now will push the envelope of change for, for women. But you have agreed to subscribe to these beliefs in your culture do you really think that these things are true about you? Where can you make changes in your own personal life that then make you a stronger person? Wow. So you feel like that kind of kicked off the, well, let's look at this thing, what we've accepted as, as normal, what it, we've accepted as this is just how it's done. You kind of took a step back and said, well, is it, does it need to be this way? And is this serving us? I mean, do you feel like that permeated a lot of different things you were doing? Everything. Everything. <laughs> uh, everything. Yes. 
Yes, because oh, I, you know, I was in my late 20s and we're still figuring out who we are at that point and where we fit in the world anyway. And these are struggles that a lot of folks have. But that that really struck me as, oh, my gosh, what do I do with this? I've been raised to, you know, live the standard female kind of 1950s housewife. You know, I, I was raised in the in the 80s when there was a lot of backlash to the women's movement. In the 80s, there was suddenly an awful lot of hatred toward working moms and people were selfish if they went to work and left their kids with daycare. And I remember even my grandmother who left her four children and moved to Panama to work on the Panama Canal when she got divorced in the 40s. She sent my mother this article about a latchkey child and how damaging it was to work and, and leave your children and they're going to be latchkey children. And at the time I was 17, I was literally babysitting other people's children at that point and almost ready to go off to college. But my grandmother still believed these things and sent my mother this article, even though she herself what, weren't living, she wasn't living that life. She, she was in Panama working on the canal. And yeah. And so that when I was 17, I remember that story really hit me why is my grandmother sending my mother this article? And it, of course, it upset my mother. And then I thought, why is the newspaper publishing this article? And then you combine that with 10 years later, fast forward 10 years, I'm about 27. And I'm realizing that maybe women can be more than that. And that we're not selfish inherently by thinking about our own needs. So I have two daughters and I wrote an article Oh gosh, it was, they were probably maybe four and six at the time. And I was talking about my life before the kids. And I was saying that I love being a mother and it's just awesome adventure. It's also the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's amazing and wonderful. And I love raising these girls. But I said about my life before kids and I traveled a ton and been all over the world and humanitarian trips and seen lots and lots of places. And I was saying about how I miss that. And I said, I started traveling with the girls and I realized that it's not an either or I can't just have this adventurous life before I have kids and then it all stops and I just become suburban mom. Like it needs to be so much more. So I wrote this article and I say, I admit I miss my life beforehand and here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna combine these two lives. So I put this article out. There's nothing inflammatory, but I had people reach out to me. I had friends. I had a friend in particular who reached out to me and said, I really disagree with what you put out because she did not think it was appropriate to say, I missed my life before my kids. And I hope that works out well for you, but it's just, uh, and it's going to be okay if my daughters miss their life and sleeping in on Saturdays or whatever it is, or just getting a backpack and leaving for eight weeks. Well, I don't really do that as a mom now, but I remember this backlash of putting that article out and I thought, wow, this was not a bold piece. This was just a toe in the water. And uh, yet people had a huge issue with it. One thing that I am happy to report, though, is that the young, especially the young ladies that I have worked with have been such an inspiration to me because they not all of them have taken on these same thoughts that I had about myself 30 years ago. So things are changing. The young women that I've worked with in the past 10 years have been much more willing to advocate for themselves that they come at it with, this is what I want, and I'm going to go after it. Um, not all of them, but 
much, they're much more adept at doing that. I'm seeing positive change. And it's the millennials, the young folks, the people just coming out of college now in their early to mid twenties that have a much better sense of their place in the world than I did at that age. Yeah, absolutely. So I I love it. The millennials are going to save us. Thank you, millennials. So I've seen that shift as well, too, the difference between someone who is maybe, you know, 55 years old negotiating versus someone who's 25. I'm noticing a difference. And I, again, that's kind of a generality, but I've, I've seen it just in the people that I've interviewed. And I thought, oh, we're, we're changing. This is, this is good. We're, we're learning from this and we're pivoting. So you used to feel differently. You used to approach this differently. It sounds like, and you know, you were conditioned to be one way, you were conditioned to probably behave a certain way and communicate all these ways that you're talking about, because the people we are often most able to help are the older versions of us, right? The younger, less experienced versions of us, right? What was the mindset shift that had to happen for you to be able to do this? Was it affirmations? Did you have to tell yourself a different story? Did you have to like pump yourself up before you would go into a negotiation? So you showed up as the powerful woman that you needed to be. How did that transition happen? It wasn't overnight. It was a gradual understanding and acceptance of where I now fit in, in the world versus what I was taking on that other people told me I should be doing, whether it was my mother or society or the person that published that latchkey article. Those were the people that I was seeking my reason for existing from those kinds of articles. I have a tendency to look for solutions and go read and you know try to find the answer somewhere and uh, those were the answers that i had for myself because other people said these are the answers so television and movies and the way women were portrayed in sitcoms and you know you think about i grew up when we, we were all watching happy yeah. days right um <laughs> yeah yeah uh and that that is something that i had to unlearn with the women in both my my coaching clients, I have some young clients. They're seeing a different version of women on on television now. They're seeing women in different roles. You know, the only person that I had maybe at that time was Mary Tyler Moore, <laughs> as a you know a, a successful career woman, and even she had a, all kinds of anxieties around that. Um, it was funny, but it was so true. Now we have a lot more role models to look up to which is great. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. We're very particular about the female role models that our girls are experienced. Now, now here's the thing, as they get older, kind of the internet casts a much larger web, no pun intended, and you can't curate that as much. But at the very beginning, we were very, very intentional about that because I was aware of definitely the messaging. I grew up in, empowered females was definitely not a thing in in my childhood as much i remember being told being criticized that my handshake was too uh too firm and that men and i quote men will think you're a ball buster april and i thought okay <laughs> oh i think i think you meant that as a criticism but that was the feedback and it was it was you know be smaller be nicer you know don't you know don't make other people insecure if you're too big and too powerful or too strong or i was a weightlifter and that was a problem because i would make other people feel bad and uh, that didn't serve me that didn't serve me and so we're so positioned to help that next generation of like hey 
we're talking from experience in that we we've done this like we've made these mistakes we were conditioned in this way and we chose different and we we want to shorten that path for you and but it sounds like some people are already coming to you and they're there this may not be some a conversation you had with them but do you think that it was in them so the people the younger generation that you're seeing that will negotiate that are um, exerting more leadership early do you think it's in them or do you think that they came from families where that was conditioned? I'm curious what you think that shift is, or do you think it's a cultural shift that's just happening for us? I think it's a cultural shift that's happening for us. I, I think, of course, their family is going to be the primary influencer for quite a while, but I am seeing women question those things more often than maybe I did when I was young. I didn't question it and they're questioning it. I'm still seeing the fear of negotiating. I'm, I'm seeing extremely competent, talented women in, in my coaching life that are still afraid to negotiate for themselves, that still don't understand how to manage being assertive in meetings or asking questions or getting past that fear of being like, we're still doing that stuff. That I haven't seen a lot of change there, but I see them much more open to changing it than maybe I was. The awareness is there maybe on the periphery because of the culture and the shift in the way women are being portrayed. And also just, we have women in powerful roles now that we didn't used to see. Yeah. And for, for the parents that are listening, know that you can shape that already, that it begins there. Sue, what you're talking about is sort of having to shift them after they're already in their 20s and you have to go, okay, let's, you've got your conditioning, let's, let's like decondition you and bring that back up. For the parents that are listening, or again, someone who's, who's really a role model in young girls' lives, you can shape this. In fact, you are the primary mode in which this is going to be shaped. So I'm encouraging them, again, just speaking about my daughters, you know, there are habits that we do with them every day to make them show up with better leadership quality. When they're addressing us, they have to address us, they have to look us in the eye. We taught them at a young age to shake hands. We taught them to look at a, adults when they're conversing with someone. You don't address someone with your head to side. Those are very <laughs> minor things. I, I did not, not teach them necessarily to respect their elders. They don't disrespect them. But instead, I, I taught them that their thoughts matter, that they have you know, excellent language and to use it and that what they have to say is really important. And so make sure people are listening, look them in the eyes, address them. Um, don't look down. Don't look. So I just want to add, if you're listening and you're a parent, this can begin with you. I mean, this can change you. And to think that you've got the power that 20 years from now, your child will be a better negotiator because you taught them to be more confident or to, to use their voices. It's not something to be overlooked. Sue, so if you could tell the world one thing, I know that's, that's a tough one, um, but if you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Uh, I love this question, and I'm glad you're asking. And uh, this might sound hokey. I don't know. I just diminished myself, didn't I? <laughs> I just did. I did. I did. Uh, but I'm going to quote one of my favorite singer-songwriters. Uh, it's Emily Salyers of the Indigo Girls. And uh, when I was going through this struggle, I turned to a song that they wrote in, I think it was 1985, they won a Grammy for it. And it's called Closer to Fine. And the main point 
that she sings in the chorus is the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. And I would tell the world to stop looking for an external source of truth for yourself, of definition for your life, of who you're supposed to be, and seek that source inside yourself, you'll be closer to find. That's amazing. That is so good. Also my favorite Indigo Girls song. That is so good. And it's interesting because in the earlier part of our of our chat, you mentioned something about, well, when you were kind of going through this transition and, and kind of figuring out your place in the world, you look to some external resources. And ultimately the answer was always with you. Oh. It was. I had to get through the anxiety and the uncertainty and the it was like an earthquake happened in my life. I had to grab onto something. And this was one song that I grabbed onto. Yeah. And it keeps meaning something to me as I, as I evolve, like we're all supposed to evolve through our lives and I'm not done yet, but this, I keep going back to that line. It's so powerful. Don't seek your source from some definitive external truth. It's inside you. It's interesting because I I related also to traveling. You know, I mentioned traveling a lot. And it's funny because I met lots of people who are on vision quests in Australia. They do these, I think it's like a year long walkabout, all these different versions, whether it's an ashram in India or people are all going to find the answers, find themselves, find And invariably, as is the case in movies and books too, the answer was always within, right? Like, I feel like this is a Disney show, but it's true. Ultimately, they walk a thousand miles to realize that the answer was always within. The home was always within. And it's like, if you could just jump to that part, but we we can't, right? We got to go out there and look for it first. And then we're like, oh, I had the answer. It was me. I just had to get quiet and listen to it first. Yeah, one of my favorite graffiti instances was uh, when somebody spray painted on a wall that said it and it said, question everything. And then somebody else came along and said, why? That's one of my favorite uh, instances of graffiti. I think I always think about that. Yeah. Oh, question everything. Question why you think you need to be small in a meeting and why you think you should diminish your thoughts and ideas. Why are you doing that? What, how is that serving you? You know, I, I realize that there's a couple of questions I actually should have asked at the beginning, but I want to make sure that I do get them in and we can always move them to the beginning afterwards. What is the problem that you solve in this world? That problem keeps changing as I grow. I, I think now that I'm seeing so many women responding to this content, it's become a new mission for me to work with them and help them solve these these exact problems. You're allowed to take up space. You're allowed to exist and have ideas. That's not a problem that I realized 30 years ago I would ever be addressing with anyone but me. And now I feel very privileged to be able to address that with women looking at my videos and my content and telling me that they're inspired by it um, that I'm making that a mission now to share what I've learned and, and mentor them. Maybe they won't have to go through as much anxiety as I did if they have someone leading the way. So where can people find you when they want to connect with you? Where do they go? It's carminemedia.com. 
Um, and then on TikTok, my username is Carmine Media. And on most of my social media accounts, other than Twitter, I'm Sue Reynolds on Twitter, but everywhere else I'm Carmine Media. So I write a blog on leadership and on social media marketing there. And I have my Leadership for Women series, web series there on the website. Uh, they can contact me there in the contact form. Lots of ways to get a hold of me. You know, we didn't talk about the the leadership series. Can you talk about that real quick? I want to make sure that we highlight that as well. So, so tell us about your women in leadership series. Yeah. So what I did was take the some of the most common questions, questions asked over and over again, and I turned them into a web series, a series of videos that, that are on my website. That's a, an educational series that you can watch at your own pace. It's five or six videos on things like we've been discussing, but more in depth. And uh, I've put together presentations that are basically webinars, web series to help women overcome some of the things that they struggle with in the workplace, just as we've been discussing. So you can get to it through my website, carminemedia.com. There's a link right from the homepage. Perfect. Just in closing, I, I usually ask this earlier, but <laughs> this is only for my own because I'm just loving this conversation. And I seriously feel like we need to not do an interview. We need to do a chat because there, I think we would just have a really good time. But <laughs> I got to know your opinion on women crying in the workplace. Women crying in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I hate the fact that we have to have a leadership discussion and that topic comes up, but I can't tell you the amount of times, I don't know, but maybe I hate it. Maybe I don't, but I can't tell you the amount of times that when I'm working with women clients, that their question is, how do you stop from crying in the workplace? So I think it's on the minds of a lot of women. How do you feel? How do you address that? My answer to most everything is it depends. And I think in this case, it would depend on why you're crying. Are you crying because you learned something upsetting about a coworker? Are you crying because you're showing that you're a human and that you have feelings and that you care about others? Or are you crying because you're angry? If you're crying because you're angry or that you feel defeated, I, I would not recommend doing that. Instead, you need to work on how to express anger and frustration in a professional way that doesn't diminish you because you're going to lose respect when you start to cry over an issue that's really about anger. So I was asked that question a little behind the scenes, but I was asked that question on a podcast one time. And it, anyways, this woman said, she mentioned something and she goes, well, you know, women, we get upset and we cry. And I replied that there's no crying in baseball. And it was not <laughs> received well. But, and I, I said, I'm sorry, but you'll diminish your, your power. You'll diminish your leadership if you, if you cry because you're angry. And I, and I understand what she was saying. She's like, it's natural. I said, well, lots of things are natural, but I wouldn't do it in the conference room. So, because I think that that is a pretty natural thing that women get angry or get upset or get overwhelmed and cry. I do think that there's a little bit of, yes, that's a natural thing. But when we get mad, it might be natural to pick up and throw something, but that's also not appropriate. We have to teach ourselves not to. Uh, do you have tools for women to use when they feel like they are going to cry because they're angry in the workplace? Do you have tools that you recommend or things that, that they should do to avoid crying in the workplace? First of all, I want to address the word natural. I think it might be common, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's natural. I think that we are crying because we're afraid to show that we're angry or frustrated or a multitude of other emotions. And yes, it might be common 
but you can learn to not uh, let those emotions get the best of you and to remain professional. And one of the things that this taught me, I also, so there's, there's two things that have taught me some pretty strong life lessons. The one that I shared with you and also the fact that I have twins. And uh, when I was raising twin babies, and it was tough because two babies is a lot and uh, they were very premature. So I was dealing with a lot of health issues with them too. I kind of learned to let stuff roll as much as humanly possible. There are very few things in my life now that are worth getting that upset about. One is if someone hurts an old person, someone hurts one of my kids, somebody hurts someone that I care about. Those are things that I would cry about or a loss or, you know, some, somebody that I love and care about is hurt, but there aren't that many business things that I can picture myself crying about. Um, you got to come at this with your, your values. It, is this really something that is worth this much emotional energy when it could be handled professionally? Like we just discussed about criticism, staying calm. Deep, deep um, breaths are huge. Deep breaths. Yes. And not internalizing everything. You know, sometimes things aren't all about you. They're, this is a situation that needs to be solved. It's a problem that we need to solve. Use your problem solving skills. Kick those into gear instead of making it about you and, and just perseverating on the negative feelings that you're having. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of quick tools that, you know, in my twenties, that was, that was something that I really had to tackle is, you know, I was in a leadership role young and whether it was natural or common, it's, it's a good separation, but that sometimes occurred. And I knew that that was not okay. And now I had no female mentors, no role models in the workplace to kind of look up to. I, I worked only with men and you know, those weren't conversations that I was having with them. I'll say funny now, cause now at my age, I can't imagine getting mad and crying at work, but there was a time when that I had an incredibly stressful job in my mid twenties. And that happened. I was in lending during the crash. And you can imagine what that was like being in, in real estate finance at the time. And I learned a glass of cold water, you walk into a tough meeting, you walk into a negotiation in general, I'm a huge advocate of this, bring a bottle of, of cold water. And that can really kind of reset you, reset your body and reset your emotions when they're getting heated, whether that's anger, whether that's frustration, whether you feel like you're going to cry, there is nothing like, it also buys you time, right? Taking a deep breath and grabbing that bottle of water and having a sip and then go, okay, now let me respond. For people that struggle with high emotions in intense situations, that is such a simple, simple thing is bring in a bottle of cold water. I don't know what it is about the cold water. Tea will work in a pinch, coffee will work in a pinch, but just taking a second to uh, take a cold drink really can settle our emotions. Three seconds, wait three seconds before you respond. As a singer, sometimes I get wrapped up in the emotion of the song that I'm singing. For example, if I happen to be singing one of those Indigo Girl songs or something that was really emotionally and per personal to me, um, I learned a trick to, this is going to sound funny, but you squeeze your butt cheeks and look up into the left and that will often stop you from crying right away. Oh my gosh. Uh, I do that when I'm this? singing. <laughs> 
I do that when I'm singing so that I don't start to cry in the middle of a song that's particularly meaningful to me. Oh my gosh, this is great. I love this. Talk about a practical <laughs> application. This is good. Yeah. Okay. You've heard heard it first here from Sue Reynolds right there. <laughs> oh my God. This is try it. And and, try and, it. and whether that's I imagine it's probably effective whether that's you're trying to not cry or again you're angry. It's just something it's just disrupting the pattern, right? It's just you, you were about to head down one road and it's something that disrupts you enough to go, okay. Um, and then you can choose to go down a different road instead of the one that you were about to go barreling down and cause all sorts of mayhem. Well, thank you so much for coming on Pivot Me and for sharing your your wisdom and your insight. And um, we will put all the links to both Sue's leadership series in the show notes as well as her social media profiles. I highly, highly encourage you to watch Sue's videos. They are how we got connected in the beginning and they are fabulous and just short and easy to action videos that will affect, will dramatically improve the way that you negotiate and show up and communicate. There's so many benefits to watching Sue's video. So definitely do that. Man, what a powerful conversation. I got so pumped in this conversation because I'm like, yes, yes, Sue. I love that she brought her expertise to the podcast, but also her vulnerability. I love that. I appreciate that she spoke candidly about, hey, I approached this wrong too, or I had some conditioning I need to shake off too. And let me tell you how I did that. It makes it so relatable and also reminds us that it's absolutely possible to grow and to achieve the kind of things that she's done by making some of these changes. She gives us some real world examples of how to level up today, right now. I love when she says, talking about the word just, just takes away the power of what you're about to say next. It does not protect you. It diminishes the impact of your communication. Often it makes you appear weak and indecisive. And yet, oh, do we hear the word just? We hear it. Verbal communication. We see it in written communication. Get just out of there. Like, just search for just and give it the boot. I want to point out something though that she said that was incredibly powerful. So when discussing women negotiating, she said, don't try to determine what you are worth, but what the position in the company is worth. And that is everything. Why? Because it sidesteps the self-worth issue that so many women struggle with. You don't have to put a price tag on what you are worth in the marketplace, but rather what the position is worth in the marketplace. Yes, this should be part of a larger conversation that we would ideally be able to solve about self-worth. But for now, this is essentially a hack for your self-worth issues. Figure out what that position commands in the workplace, and then you know what you're aiming for. Wrapping up this conversation was so important to have. It reminds me of a, actually an Oprah quote where she says, you get what you have the courage to ask for. I'd actually even kick up that quote a little bit more and say, you get what you have the courage to ask for, expect, and even demand. Don't wait for the door to open for you. Break the damn door down. Have a great day. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors, and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. 
Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.